we're entering a, a time of heightened uncertainty. And one can sense that there's a feeling of uncertainty in the community. Because uncertainty doesn't feel nice, isn't it? Do you like to have a reliable supply of money working and every day or every month or every week you get your money? When you go to the supermarket and you can buy food, there's food in your fridge. Now, usually as a human being, we are making a big effort to have things stable. Stable relationship. Now, that is a natural tendency which we are trying to do. We're keeping our health stable. However, you know, the reality has a opposite characteristic. The Buddha used the term anicca. This is often translated as impermanent. But it's much wider in meaning. It also means unreliable. It means not certain. It means not sure. Not sure was Ajahn Chah's favorite translation for Anicca. Something you can't really rely on. It comes different from what you expect. And even if it comes the way you expect it, then it changes and it turns into unexpected or the other way around. Or neither of the two. And it's very hard to predict. Uncertain means hard to predict. Do you occasionally check the weather report? Will that be raining tomorrow? Will it be hot tomorrow? Is it always accurate? Are you happy when it's totally different and predicted? Maybe if it's better, then we're happy. No? But often one complains. You're on that walk, or you have your little party or barbie, or the barbecue, and then suddenly the thunderstorm comes down, although they predicted fine weather. But this is our nature. <laughs> this is unreliable. This is unpredictable. And we are so addicted to stability that we even distort our perception and that we tend to expect and to see things which are unreliable, unpredictable, uncertain, unsure and impermanent, that we see them as permanent, that we convince ourselves and others that this is stable, reliable. And that is a huge delusion. Now that is a sign of avidya, of ignorance. So when we are mistakenly assuming that things are stable, reliable, and that I can control things and work it all out and predict it, that may psychologically that may feel somewhat nice not to have that delusion. The problem is it's not in agreement with reality and reality will always catch up with us and we will experience that our own body is impermanent, unstable. We'll experience that the bodies of loved ones are unstable, impermanent 
that they may die on us, that they may be taken away of us, from us by death. And we can't even predict when that is going to happen. The same with uh, our feelings, our emotions. Anything which we observe in our mind, and if you will notice, it is changing. It's not reliable. It is often also quite unpredictable in what kind of emotions, feelings will arise. So for a Dhamma practitioner, whenever there is external periods of the dramatic change, uncertainty, that can be useful to shake us out of our delusion, to overcome that vipalasa. The Buddha called it a vipalasa, a nitche, nitche sanya, the distortion of perception, the distortion of view and thinking, that we think, view and see what is unstable and unreliable as stable and permanent, like this body. This is why we are so shocked or surprised and if we go to the doctor, we may feel fine and then we go to the doctor, you get a check up and suddenly there's a problem and then a big, big shock because we thought we can rely on this body to be healthy and to last. It is, in a sense, a curious assumption as we cannot find a single person, even in the Guinness Book, who has ever lived in a beyond 120 about. So, there can be a benefit to get shaken out of that. Because the one result of mistakenly taking things for permanent and reliable is that we are attaching to them, that we are clinging to them, that we are identifying with them, that we are grasping at them and taking them as me and mine. It's like when you buy a car. Have you ever buy it? Have you ever bought a used car? Maybe you don't have much money and either you have to buy an old bum of a car, 20-year-old Honda or something, and then, and then you go and then check that car out. And maybe you're quite knowledgeable in terms of car mechanics. And uh, this is a good offer, the car is really cheap. But then you check it out and you come to the conclusion that this car will probably not even make it to your home before it falls apart. Even if the price is quite attractive, would you buy a car which is already so old and damaged that you're not quite sure it will completely fall apart even before it arrives at your home? Would you buy that? No, no one would want to buy that. No one would want to own that. No one would want to claim possession and say, this is my car. No one would want to cling to it and grasp at it. How about our bodies? 
or some Yoast Carl scam guy looks like a used body scam guy and has somehow tricked us into us believing that this body is worthwhile to own, to possess, to cling to, to grasp at, to claim that this is me, my body, this is I. Or that it may fall apart very quickly and we know for sure if it doesn't fall apart very quickly, it will still fall apart quite soon. So we can notice the delusion, the distorted perception of seeing things as permanent, reliable and stable leads to attachment, identification, clinging and grasping. Next we can investigate what is the result of identifying, clinging and grasping. For example, you buy that car because you're not very smart in terms of car mechanics and you didn't notice that it's already falling apart. And uh, you pay money, you don't have much, but you pay. And then you drive off. And before you arrive at your home, that thing starts falling apart. The wheels turn off, the motor stops. And then you call the and the mechanics, they tell you, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. <laughs> this thing is basically you know, just, just a heap of, of trash. Would you feel happy then? You would be upset, ne? you would be disappointed, you would be sad. And why? Because after you bought it, you thought it is my car. You had a sense of ownership. You wanted to use that car, you had all these plans. So what we notice, the distorted perception, the vipalasa, that things are reliable and stable, this leads to clinging, attachment, grasping. And clinging, attachment, grasping leads to disappointment, sadness and suffering. When these things turn out to be unreliable according to reality because it doesn't go according to our distorted perception, it doesn't go according to our delusions. We cannot face the world in a deluded state forever. It may work a while, but at some stage in reality will uh, get through to us. And then comes the disappointment, the suffering. So now we are smarter after we contemplate it like that. And we don't buy into that distorted perception. We don't take things to be permanent and stable and reliable. We contemplate this body as unreliable and impermanent and one day in a dying and the elements are just going with nature. We contemplate the same for our feelings, for our possessions, for our loved ones. So we are overcoming, at least partially, that vipalasa, that distortion. What is a 
result of that? What's the consequence of that? Once you can clearly see that this body is something completely unreliable, I don't even know whether this body will still be in the working tomorrow, whether I wake up, I may die in my sleep even. Anyone I know, and I, I wouldn't know, I can't even tell whether my father is alive right now. I spoke to him only in a few days ago, but now if he contemplate, now I couldn't tell it for sure. So if I do these contemplations and I overcome the distortion of seeing things as permanent and reliable, what will be the consequence? Yeah, no. I will not attach to this body. I will not try to own this body. I will not grasp it. I will not cling to this body because now I see this body doesn't last anyhow. Now this is the result of that contemplation. Now Anatta is connected with that. Now that is another delusion. And they're closely connected because if something is permanent and reliable in the absolute sense, then this would be a suitable self. It would be a point in regarding that as self. But why would anyone in their right mind regard something that is unreliable, changing, and just giving us disappointment? Why would anyone in their white mind want to regard that as safe, grasp at that as safe. So this is why the Buddha wants us to contemplate not safe and uncertain, unsure, impermanent, so that we can let go and that we don't grasp at it. And what is the result if we let go, we don't grasp, we don't cling? Now this is the peace now. If we don't cling, if we don't grasp, if we let go, then we will have peace. Then we won't have disappointment and suffering. And this is what the Buddha intends. Now, sometimes when people hear about the teaching and they hear about and contemplating that I will die one day, my loved ones, and so on, that may sound scary or it may sound depressive, it's a complete misunderstanding. It's not meant at all to make us depressed. It is just to overcome the delusion so that we are no longer grasping and clinging. And if you are not grasping and clinging, then when this change according to reality occurs, we can't prevent it by our delusions. We can, for some period, try to deny it and not see it, but reality will always get through to us at some stage, and then comes the suffering. But if we follow that instruction of the Buddha, and we contemplate impermanence, and we do not grasp, then the suffering doesn't come, then the disappointment doesn't come, then the pain doesn't come. Then we are not panicky when 
we are moving up from zero infections a day to 10 or 20 or even 100. There's no fear overwhelming our heart because we are not so attached. If you may not be able to do that completely, let's say letting go of all attachment to the body in a very, very advanced stage of practice. But it already works kind of gradually. If we can let go a little bit, then we will already have a little bit less suffering. If we can let go a lot, then we will have a lot less suffering. And if we can let go completely, we will have no suffering at all. Dispassion. Yeah, sometimes the Buddha explains you know, the different steps in that causal chain more elaborately. The dispassion is usually in Pali in a viraga and is usually described as a result of nibida, a dis- disenchantment or repulsion. And disenchantment is a result of seeing things as they truly are. And I gave one example of seeing things as they truly are, namely as unreliable. It may not originally feel so nice. The delusion can sometimes feel nicer until reality hits (laughs) and then all the big suffering comes. But if we can see things as they truly are, namely as impermanent, unreliable, and we actually do get the disenchantment and then the vivaga, the dispassion, and then the vimuti, the letting go. Now that is when you get the real benefit because then you don't suffer when impermanence actually happens. Or if the understanding is limited, then at least we suffer only to a limited extent. Okay, here's a question. The school has just finished. They're on holidays now here in Queensland. And uh, some kids are very elated, very happy because they had good marks. They scored high. Other kids are down, depressed because they had bad marks. They scored low. Now, the first thing which comes to mind, what we just talked about, being elated and being depressed. This is also something uncertain, something changing, something unpredictable. And whether it's your scorecard in school or your uh, reports at work, or whether it's the weather or anything, we will always have our mind going up and down. Win and lose. This is a worldly dhamma. And high scores, low scores. High scores like winning, low scores is like losing. And these worldly dhammas, they will always change and turn around. So I would recommend the kids who are very elated 
to contemplate that these things can change. And maybe next year they may have a girlfriend or a boyfriend the next year and get a little bit distracted and don't do all the swatting. And then the marks go down. And then the next year they may get very dejected. So it's good not to get too much carried away by that elation, in particular not to get carried away by uh, conceit or arrogance. No, I'm the, how do you call that, the top performer in class? There's a name for that, no? The, the ducks, no? yeah. I'm the ducks and these others are fools. And we don't get carried away like that. Maybe contemplate that can change. Or maybe if you're top performing in mathematics and maybe even physics, and then you go to university and you study mathematics, and every single person there <laughs> is a top performer and suddenly you're no longer top. And you find that there's some other guy who is just so outrageously better. And it can be quite uh, disappointing then. This all things can change. So if we contemplate uh, uncertain, not sure, then by good marks we, we don't get carried away too much. And I recommend the kids who are disappointed and down and dejected but I would recommend those kids to contemplate that it's all impermanent. And if in the next year they put in more effort, they study diligently, you know, they may come out with good marks, and then they are the elated ones. So all of that, you know, the marks have to be contemplated as impermanent, unreliable, not sure but also just your general emotions. This always goes up and down. It's a little bit like when you come from Kenmore side to Damagiri. A few people coming in from Kenmore, or you, do you all come via Ipswich Motorway? You may have noticed that there's this, before you arrive in Kawana Downs, there's this almost like roller coaster. It goes up and down like this a few times. I'm very happy about that because then you can start your contemplations already on the way here and can continue them on the way back, up and down, up and down, happy, unhappy, happy, unhappy. This is normal in life, winning, losing. Australia did really well at the ashes. They smashed England, eh? Don't get carried away too much because uh, it's not yet over, ne? Was it over? No, ne? No, there's five in the series. So next one may turn away the other way around. And if you're too elated now, then you will be awfully dejected. And if you're poking too much fun at the pommies, then they will take revenge when England wins and poke even more fun at you. As if you keep more balanced, then these disappointments and things will not happen.
parents who get disappointed because they get upset. Very good comment here. No? Often it's actually the parents who get more elated and depressed than the kids due to the marks of the kids. And I totally agree. So parents should contemplate. They may not be able to control exactly what marks the kids are getting. And if you are getting so elated or so upset about bad marks and so elated about good marks that you are pulling the thumb screws on the kid in a maximum level, the kid may even end up becoming suicidal and worse. And these cases happen. This shows you know, the danger in getting too much carried away by that. Exactly, and you have to encourage them, but now always keeping the metta, you know, the loving kindness, always you know, still indicating and showing that you've got their back, no matter what they do in school or what the performance is, but you encourage them, you support them, occasionally push them a bit, <laughs> some need that. But you will be much better in doing that encouragement in the most skillful and beneficial way if your happiness or total depression doesn't depend on the marks of the kid. It's a tremendous burden on a child if the child feels the, the happiness or misery of my parents and maybe even plus four grandparents depends exclusively on me and my performance. No, you wouldn't want to put that onto anyone. I heard that in China can happen a lot because no, Chinese culture is very strong on scholarly learning and studying. And then with a the one-child policy, you can have the situation there's one child which has got only two parents and has got four grandparents. And you have six people who have now this one child as the very center of their whole life. And that one child has to live up to the expectations of six people. That can be really crushing. If it is just getting the love and affection of six people, they're great. But if there's very tough expectations, so we contemplate the passing and failing, winning and losing, happy and dejected, praise and blame. That's another one. When they praise you, contemplate, very uncertain. And the people you know, who have praised you next year, well, they may blame you. Last year they were all clapping for people in medical profession. This year very different. What's happening now? So praise and blame is changing a lot. And then also on the fame and obscurity. How many followers have you got on your Instagram? Don't have Instagram? This is very smart because if you have Instagram and you have many followers, you'll be very dejected if they suddenly move to someone else. 
and uh, inevitably that's going to happen because at some age you will no longer have uh, the appearance of an Instagram influencer. You will not be able at age 50 or at age 80 to put up the beautiful photos for which they like you so much. The fame and obscurity, Facebook followers, um, views on your YouTube channel, TikTok, do you do TikTok? Amazing. Ah, yeah, I have to praise these parents. Are you okay with it? Yeah, yeah. It's so addictive and there's so many people get completely lost in that. Even in ancient Roman times, you know, that was considered you know, the highest happiness a human being can attain. When they have their triumph in Rome, the winning the battle and then the whole population is cheering them on. That really goes to one's head. And then even people who are as famous as it gets, you know, someone like Michael Jackson or Madonna or movie stars, Keanu Reeves and all these famous movie stars, now they often are under pressure. Because even if you're at the top, the most of us, and we would be very impressed now, if you can do some, uh, play some music and you have gotten a, a thousand people coming to listen to you playing the piano or something. Amazing, no? a thousand people listening to me. For Michael Jackson, if he has a big concert and a thousand people come, do you think he would be happy about that? I mean, apart from that he has passed away now, but when he was alive, for him that would be a total failure. For him probably 50,000 in a stadium that holds 100,000 would be a total failure. But if you contemplate impermanence and the change, we're not getting stuck on it. So let us all contemplate how things are unstable, how they are impermanent. And then you're not feeling afraid and shaky when things go up. But I still have to mention them, the maybe most important thing. Because if you only contemplate you know, that things are impermanent, and even if you can let go, it is still not very satisfactory. But you know, the real amazing thing is, there's something that is not impermanent. There's something that is not unsure, that is not changing. What is it? Nibbana, exactly, the asankata, the unconditioned. So when we contemplate impermanence, anicca, and keep in mind, ultimately we are doing that to go beyond anicca. And it is possible and has been done by countless thousands of enlightened beings since the Buddha discovered it just in this dispensation. So it's not only you know, to contemplate impermanence so that I resign myself to something I can't change. It's not resignation, not at all. We are not resigning ourselves to impermanence. That is a misunderstanding I also encounter. 
people think that's just we contemplate it because we can't change it, and so we resign ourselves to it. No. What we try to do is to go beyond impermanence, like Parayana, and to go beyond the first shore, the farther shore, the far shore, the going beyond anything that is unstable, impermanent, changing, and therefore dukkha, going beyond dukkha, going beyond death. That's the other thing I like to remind everyone that when you are getting a little bit shaky now, what is going to happen here in Queensland, the way to the deathless is open. <laughs> and rather than feeling now shaky or worrying or panicky, let us all use that as an incentive to practice more diligently. And when you watch the news now, and maybe the cases go up, 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 daily infections, up, 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 what do you do? Don't get panicky, don't get afraid, but sit down, meditate, keep your precepts, develop generosity, and in particular, in a contemplate. Focus your mind in samadhi and then contemplate that this body is not you, but just an impermanent conglomerate of elements so that you can let go and that we can ultimately reach that state beyond impermanence, beyond dukkha, beyond death, beyond sickness, beyond new birth. It's there, it's right there for the taking. You don't even have to go anywhere to get that. Because where do you go to get Nibbana? It's not a place to go to. No? You can't, even if you have a Ferrari or even if you have one of these SpaceX or what the billionaires are doing now. You don't have to envy the billionaires for that. No? They can't fly to Nibbana either. Where's Nibbana? Yeah, now, right in your heart, in this body, to fathom long or fathom high and endowed with perception and consciousness, right in there is the end of suffering to be found and can be found. So we are not getting scared now when things are becoming more uncertain, when there is uh, sickness and death occurring. But we use that to practice more diligently, with more commitment. We use that to sit down and calm the mind and then to contemplate impermanence so that the mind can let go. That's all we have to do. If you see that clearly and your mind can let go of just everything completely, the heart just lets go. And there's no more problem with COVID or any other disease. There's no more problem with absolutely anything. Your heart is free and totally at ease. Can be done. So whenever panic strikes you or anxiety or apprehension, and I just remember that the deathless, the Buddha experience and all the great Kuba Ajans, that can be experienced right there in your heart. Does a mind ever die? Now the mind, what is called consciousness, 
will normally connect to new bodies and then continue uh, attached to a body. You know, the Buddha sometimes gives the simile for consciousness, you know, like a, a diamond or some jewel where someone has put a, a, a string onto it that you can hold it. You know, the string is like the body and then the diamond is like the consciousness. But it's possible for consciousness not to die, but it's possible for consciousness to be totally free and released. One simile the Buddha gave is like a light beam. For example, sometimes in the early morning we have the sunlight shining in, and if the sunlight shines in, where will it manifest? on the floor, usually, no? when the sun shines in, then you will see the light on the floor. Now imagine if you didn't have this timber floor and the light shines in, where would it manifest? Where would it be established? No, no, on the soil underneath. If there was no soil underneath and nothing underneath, yeah, no, then it would just not be established anywhere. If, if, if a light doesn't, if a light beam doesn't hit anything, then it would be you know, unestablished. That is one simile the Buddha has given for consciousness that is apathetic, unestablished, non-manifest, however you want to call it, the liberated heart, the freed mind, the vimutta chitta, Unestablished consciousness, free, can't describe it, and your way of describing it would be misleading.